a serial killer may be making the rounds around Manchester. And these were all young men, a lot of them in university. He just let out the most blood-curdling scream. He was howling and yelling. It was horrendous. It's thought that Macabre said, I've been shot. Where the coroner just can't conclude what happened. They have as much evidence as they can get and they still just can't come to a conclusion. Sprinted across Manchester somehow without being seen by a single camera. They're often either seen or heard acting very erratically. The behaviour is completely out of character. Whether it's conspiracies, missing persons cases, murders, this podcast aims to discover the truth behind those mysteries. Welcome to The Scarlet Letter. Hello and welcome to episode one of The Scarlet Letter, the podcast that aims to uncover the truth behind the mystery. Apologies if you can hear any background noise, I am currently recording at home because of our lovely friend Storm Eunice, but that is another discussion. So today I thought I would start off with a series of bizarre disappearances that have really captivated my attention, particularly due to them being very local, first of all. All of them take place in the Manchester canals surrounding Salford, Media City, Deansgate, the area that spans across all of those different places. And these incidences are the Manchester Canal disappearances. Now, some of you may have heard of this case, or these cases rather, and some of you might be quite unfamiliar with them. I think it's kind of like an urban legend that's been circulating around Manchester for a little while now, but I haven't really heard many people talk about it in recent days. So I thought we'd delve a little bit deeper into what the Manchester Canal disappearances are and, you know, the theories surrounding them, are they all connected? Because trust me, when we uncover some of this information, I think at least some of you are going to be questioning whether it was an accident or whether there might be some shadier things going on here, to put it lightly. (coughs) So this sort of all started when I was scrolling through the MEN, as you do, my journal students know, and I saw a story that kind of just highlighted on the 29th of December last year, so very recently, that two men were found dead in a canal in the space of three days. And immediately I was like, that seems a little bit weird. So I clicked on the article and it kind of stated the first man was found in Leeds and Liverpool Canal near the Scotsman's Flash in Wigan. So I was like, all right, Wigan, it's not too far away, but it's also not ridiculously near either. He was found at 10 to 1 on Christmas Eve, which is just heartbreaking, first of all. And the second man was found six miles away on Boxing Day, equally as heartbreaking, in a canal near Welch Street in Lee. Now, at first I was like, oh, two different canal deaths, not much to kind of trivialise or analyze from those two but then I found out that the canal well not just that canal but a hell of a lot of different canals are connected first of all and this kind of was the fodder for me wanting to research all right well how often does this happen is it just kind of one or two deaths heartbreaking unfortunate deaths 
and then we move on with it? Or is it, is there something a lot deeper going on here? So, I started kind of researching cases like this. And then I found another case which dated back like three years before this one. And again, it was on Boxing Day and a man was pulled from Ancourts in central Manchester. And I was like, oh, alarm bells, that is ridiculously near me. At 9am on Boxing Day. And in a canal not far from that, I kind of discovered that bodies have been pulled from Lee in Greater Manchester. There was one pulled in May 2020 at 9.30am. And then, even more worryingly, the stories kind of kept going on and on and on and on. And I was seeing a correlation between like the location and the way that they died. And it was jarring, to say the least. So, on the 9th of September 2021, a body was pulled from Manchester's Ship Canal on South Pier Road at 7am. And Cheshire Constabulary were called after concerns about the person, and the person was seen near Ellesmere Port right before their death. But, again, we'll get to this in more detail a bit later on, but the coroner was very unsure about the actual cause of death so what that means is a lot of the times the coroner will leave a case an open verdict so they don't know if the person actually died from drowning or if they died from being assaulted or ingesting something into their system before they hit the water and they just cannot find out which is especially concerning because obviously a coroner's job is to determine the cause of death so if they can't figure it out clearly then who can and the stories just kept going on and on like a man pulled from Bridgewater Canal on Thursday the 14th of October 2021 at 7.40am and it, for those of you who don't know Bridgewater Canal is located in Greater Manchester and it was right beside Brooklyn's Metrolink stop now that is a Metrolink stop I'm familiar with I don't know about the rest of you those of you who take the Metrolink quite often might be familiar with it and I think the more localised something is, the more it sticks with you. A specific one, and one I found kind of the most recently really, was the absolutely heartbreaking death of 20-year-old student Charlie Gadd. Now, I think here's probably an appropriate time to put a bit of a disclaimer in. I obviously mean no disrespect to the friends, family members, individuals behind these tragic victims and no disrespect to the victim themselves. Everything I am saying is purely for educational purposes and it is information that I kind of found online and I'm telling you guys. So Charlie Gadd was a student who was attending the warehouse project with his parents. He was last seen on December the 11th, 2021. And the announcement that his body had been recovered was obviously heartbreaking for so many people, but obviously unusual as well. So his body was recovered on December the 12th at 11.30am and so this death was heartbreaking to so many people who knew Charlie but what was unusual were perhaps the moments leading up to his death so Charlie's body was discovered at 11:30 a.m on the 10th of January 2022. He was last seen near the spa store in St Mary's Gate at around 1.10am on Saturday December the 11th and it was reported that he was alleged to have run off after that and CCTV unfortunately didn't catch him until about 1.15am and he was shown to be exhibiting movement outside the Royal Exchange Theatre in St Anne Street. After that, 
it's uncertain how Charlie ended up in the Manchester Ship Canal, which I can't even imagine, first of all. That must be the most heartbreaking thing ever as a parent to hear that. It's one thing your young son passing away, but it's another thing to not know how. And I can't imagine how many questions they have unanswered as a result of that. Charlie's dad, Jolson Gad, called him a bright and funny loving man who everybody hugely enjoys being around. And when I heard that, I just thought, it must be soul destroying to not know how or why your son ended up in the predicament that he did. And I think the case of Charlie Gad was definitely the catalyst of me finding all sorts about the theory of the Manchester Canal disappearances. As you might have noticed, a lot of these have correlations or connections to either the Bridgewater Canal or canals sort of circulating around Manchester. And I think what I found the most unsettling was that so many of these cases were left without answers. Hundreds of family members heartbroken at the loss of their beloved child. And something incredibly interesting I found for you geography students out there, Manchester has a population size of around 510,000 and its canal stretches around 115 kilometres. Birmingham, shout out to my people from Birmingham, <laughs> if you're listening, Birmingham has a population size of a, of one million. Well, I said 100,000 then, that would have been a small city. <laughs> and a canal size of 268 kilometres. Yet, only 40 bodies have been pulled from Birmingham canals since 2004 in comparison to almost 90 in Manchester since 2004. So Manchester's near enough half the size both in canal size and population size to Birmingham, yet Manchester has over double the amount of bodies pulled from canals since 2004 as Birmingham. And I was like, right, well, it's clear that Manchester's got some sort of issue with young people drowning. Well, maybe it's because, I don't know, there's a lot of bars near the canal, you know, Deansgate, the clubbing circuit is huge there. But I still didn't think that this explained everything. I still was left with a lot of unanswered questions. So I was just desperate to look into it more. So, I then delved further into this and I found five cases that kind of stood out exponentially to me for various different reasons. And I would just like to specifically thank, actually, Top Mysteries and Deborah Hatswell on YouTube because a lot of the information I'm going to tell to you now I did discover via both of their channels. So, I thought it only fair to give credit where credit's due. So, dating back, all the way back, to when the statistics I mentioned before first came into effect, April 17th, 2004. This was when David Plunkett went missing without any explanation. So, David was studying events management at Leeds University and was apparently very well liked and he was on a mystery tour night in Manchester. So, you know, Leeds University, he might have visited some friends, he was having a night on the town, he was having a really good time. He was last seen at the Budweiser Festival at the Daytona Racetrack in Trafford Park. And he was said to have been having a really good time, nothing really seemed amiss, but unfortunately, that's not how his night ended. At 1.20am on the 18th of April, his parents got a call, Mr and Mrs Blunkett, from David's friends, basically saying his friend and him had been separated. 
and this specific friend didn't know where he was. So obviously the friend was quite concerned, thought he'd give a call to the parents, thinking there was some justifiable explanation for this. And David's mother, Mrs Plunkett, actually rang her son. And this is sort of where this case just becomes so not only heartbreaking, but eerie. I genuinely got a chill down my spine when I heard about this for the first time. According to Mrs Plunkett, she said, We rang David, and when he answered he was incoherent. There was no noise in the background, and it struck me that he was on his own. I can't even imagine what that must feel like for a mother to know that her son is on his own, and perhaps in a very vulnerable situation, and there's nothing she can do, because she's at home, and she can't go out to save him, she doesn't know specifically where he is. It must be the most heart-wrenching thing. Ten minutes into this specific phone call, David just screams. And seemingly screams at nothing, like there was no noise in the background, they couldn't hear anything. He just let out the most blood-curdling scream. As quoted by his mum, he was howling and yelling. It was horrendous. So, nothing was heard in the background. No lead up to this scream. David seemingly just yelped out of nowhere. And his family managed via either phone service or phone calls. It is not clear, unfortunately. But they did manage to keep phone contact with him until about 4.30am. When he first answered the call with his parents, it was said that he was kind of located somewhere between Salford Keys and the Old, Tricket and the Old Trafford Cricket Ground. Now, his parents had stated that their son was kind of out of it. He kind of sounded quite delirious, which was extra concerning to them because usually David was a very level-headed individual. He was able to hold a conversation, even when drunk, but he'd never screamed at them before or sworn at them before. So both of these things immediately kind of sent off alarm bells with both of his parents and oh, this quote that I found from David's mum is just the worst Mrs Plunkett said it came right out of the blue that's what scared me so much it's just heart wrenching to think about what she must have went through when David was, well, they didn't know it at the time, but in his final moments. David's body was found two weeks later in the Manchester Ship Canal. As reported by examinerlive.co.uk, Home Office pathologist Dr John Rutherford reported that there was absolutely no evidence that David had been assaulted, stating the most probable cause of death as accidental drowning. Immediately, this sort of sets off several questions, not only in my head, but in David's family's head as well. Had it been accidental drowning, first of all, they would have heard his phone hit the water. If he'd have still been on the phone to them, or he might have had his phone in his possession, they'd have heard a splash of his phone falling into the canal. No splash was heard. No one was heard behind him, near him absolutely nothing like that it was almost like david screamed and then vanished just off the face of the earth and david's father actually seems to sort of echo that sentiment quoted saying he was on the phone but all of a sudden couldn't speak to us and that's not because he was drunk his mother kind of added to this discourse and she kind of said, the screaming and howling was so unearthly, we just thought it had to be something. And 
One thing I found about this case as well, his mobile phone was found upstream by his uncle. Despite the police searching the same area for his mobile phone. Which, you know, maybe the police just didn't see it, the police are not perfect people, but I just find it insane really, that his uncle was able to find the phone, yet the police weren't. And as I said, the fact that his parents would have heard a splash of a phone was kind of backed up by a detective named David Blockley, who actually kind of took the time to investigate this case. But unfortunately, we know that David died, but we don't know how he ended up in that water or what happened beforehand to make him so terrified that he had to scream like that. And I don't want to say it's something we'll never know. I hope it's something we find out and I hope more gets done with the CCTV around the canals because that's one thing you'll see as kind of a pattern in these cases, the shoddy CCTV that just somehow gets lost or their whereabouts aren't mapped. We're the most CCTV heavy, or one of the most CCTV heavy countries in the world and I just find it insane that still so many CCTV cameras either don't work or don't capture certain frames and I think that's something that desperately needs to improve. As is kind of backed up by this second case, on the 17th of December 2010, and it's the case of Nathan Tomlinson. So Nathan was an easy and fun-loving guy. He had gone out for a Christmas party with his friends, and it happened to be snowing at the time. I don't know if any of you remember the Christmas of 2010. I do slightly, but I was quite young, I'm not gonna lie. I remember the snow was pretty heavy though. And it was that sort of heavy, heavy winter. So Nathan was last seen leaving the Micra. Micra? I might butcher some pronunciations in this podcast, but... I apologise. So Nathan was last seen leaving the Micra. I'm going to go with Micra. Bar by himself in heavy snow. So already he's quite compromised because he's leaving by himself in treacherous weather. Which, if you're ever out with your friends, don't leave on your own. Obviously, a lot of these people had reasons and you don't judge other people. But if you can help it, don't leave on your own. It's so much safer to leave at least with one friend who knows where you are. Just a word of advice. (laughs) So in the early hours of the 19th, so Nathan wasn't actually reported missing for like a day and a half. Because... His friends assumed he was with his mum. His mum assumed he was with his friends. He was an adult, so at the end of the day, him being missing wasn't that uncommon. But his mother did report him missing in the early hours of the 19th. But the police didn't take it very seriously. And allegedly, the officer said to his mum that Nathan was probably cuddled up with some nice young woman. If that is real, and the police officer actually said that, I can't even think of anything more insensitive, especially to a mum who's lost a son. I could rant about that for ages, to be honest. So I'm gonna move on swiftly. So CCTV, what they did capture of him, he approached a bus driver asking for directions because it was believed he was trying to get home to Brinnington, I believe, in Stockport, as his phone was shown to have used Google Maps as well. The bus driver had kind of told him, get a train home from Piccadilly, you know, just get your Northern Rail back to Stockport. But unfortunately, Nathan would never get that train. In fact, the CCTV had shown Nathan leaving the pub, jumping over a wall near Manchester Cathedral, I believe, the incredibly tall building. I'm sure a lot of you know where I'm talking about. 
He then walked down a street named Victoria Street and some of this is quite hazy as I made the point about the CCTV and about how unfortunately we can't document all of Nathan's movements although I wish I could tell you guys his movements step by step. Maybe that would bring his family some closure but it just can't be done. So police believe that he walked down a new footpath next to the river Irwell before venturing into self can't speak today before venturing into central Salford, the home of our uni, Salford University. So this is beginning to hit really close to home. He was captured walking to Key Street and then Chapel Street boarding another bus to ask someone else for directions before the last sighting of him showed him running across the Adelphi footbridge near Linen Court off of Silk Street. He turned left after crossing this bridge and then heartbreakingly he went out of camera view. Not only is it awful that Nathan drowned the eventual outcome of his death he drowned yet again same as david in the manchester canal but i'd say the even more heartbreaking thing and the weirdest thing to me about this so the journey i just described to you there was quite circuitual police kind of found that he ran in sort of like a big circuit and it was a two and a half mile journey and I get some people are fast walkers, but he completed this two and a half mile journey in 20 minutes. Now, Tony Blockley, who I mentioned before, investigated the case and it took him 40 minutes to complete the same route. 40. So double the amount of time that Nathan somehow walked this journey in. His body was eventually discovered by a passerby in the Irwell River, right near the bridge that he crossed. Now, pathologist Naomi Carter claimed that he drowned, but she did not know if he'd drowned in the river or he'd died beforehand, which I thought was interesting. Something even more suspicious, they found him to be missing not only his coat, but his passport, his phone, and his wallet. I think there's something definitely fishy about that. Yes, he could have been drunk, but look, I've been drunk before. And to leave your coat, your passport, your phone, and your wallet in a pub that you were with friends at before you left alone, it just sounds very suspicious to me. Especially because he'd apparently texted his parents, you know, earlier on in the night, saying he's pacing himself, he's drinking his shandy. Now, obviously, he could have told a little white lie. We've all been there. But I just think there's something so much deeper to it than that. And Nathan's mother, you know, she echoes the same sentiment because she's like, I think the key to understanding Nathan's death may lie in understanding why he was running because the police sort of had to conclude that he must have at least jogged or ran or even taken another mode of transport that wasn't really captured on cctv because it just doesn't seem plausible that he'd take a two and a half mile journey in 20 minutes but unfortunately due to the overwhelming lack of cctv and the lack of clear-cut evidence, Nathan's death also remains unsolved. Moving on to our third case, in unfortunately a very long succession of similar cases, Chris Brainy, on June the 29th, 2012, was attending a Stone Roses reunion concert in Heaton Park. Now, he was with his friend Mark throughout, but unfortunately, happens to the best of us, especially at a concert, he sort of realised that he'd lost his phone, and at around half eleven, 
the two sort of became separated after the concert because obviously, you know, the crowds, especially at a Stone Roses reunion concert, would have been mental. If any of you have ever been to Heaton Park, you know, the crowds can get insane. Now, again, similarly to Nathan, he wasn't reported missing till about two days later. After not answering the phone that night or the following day. Now, again, we've got very bitty CCTV activity. He was seen retrieving some shoes that he'd hidden at Shude Hill Metro Station, which I did think was a little bit weird, but his friend sort of explained this by saying, oh, we hid them there to sort of change after the concert in case we wanted to go out more. And I was like, all right, no, I can see that. <laughs> but he was also seen, you know, around park and ride bus sites for the event because obviously there's thousands and thousands of people at this concert so they usually do shuttle bus type things to enable spectators to sort of get in and out safely so he was allegedly seen getting off a bus at one of these sites and he told a group of young women that he'd lost his phone and his friends which did make me so sad because as much as they might have thought oh it's quite funny this guy's quite drunk he might well he may well have been pretty scared like he yes he was a grown man but it's still scary to be in the middle of manchester on your own especially at night so according to cctv we've got documentation of chris making his way to the city center and he did this via St Mary's Parsonage, down a remote alley to a riverside walkway. Which is a bit odd, I suppose, that he didn't stay on the road, but he most likely had his reasoning for walking the way that he did. But again, his body was found ten days later in the Manchester Ship Canal. And according to messengernewspapers.co.uk, at the inquest, which happened at Stockport Coroner's Court on February the 4th of 2013, Coroner Joanne Kersley actually resolved the case as an open verdict, which is what I mentioned before, as she just didn't have the evidence to determine exactly how he ended up in the water. He did have alcohol and MDMA in his system, but unfortunately it is very common for the police as soon as someone even has a drop or a trace of drugs in their system to immediately pin alcohol abuse drug abuse as their death case closed and unfortunately a lot of the cases are so much more complex than that and i do think the police need to stop pinning drug use on every case don't get me wrong there are definitely some cases that follow that route but I don't I just don't think this was one of them so pathologist Naomi Carter said the riverside walkway that he actually walked down as well was lined with such a high railing the river was literally 40 feet below and if he was still drunk or tipsy from the concert he'd have had to literally climb up and then jump in or and what we might get into a little bit later on he might have been thrown over. Now, despite Detective Inspector Deborah Oakes ruling out any third party involvement because she claimed there was only one way in and out of the alleyway, there's still some very suspicious elements to this case. Not only the height of the fence, but the fact that Chris sustained cuts to his face. Now, apparently these were accounted for by the fact that he'd hit the water and they were sustained that way because apparently if you're assaulted or hit, those cuts are normally accompanied by bruising, but Chris did not have any bruising on his face. And a witness actually, whose flat backed onto the same walkway that Chris was seen on, claims that he saw a man matching Chris's description sitting in the alleyway with his back to the railing 
So this kind of fueled the suicide theory by the police. So sensitive warning, there will be topics based around suicide in this podcast. So if that's something you're not comfortable with, feel free to watch the next episode. Keep yourself safe. Um, but Chris's father heavily disputes this. Chris's father's just kind of like, no, the thought never entered my mind. Now, obviously, you know, he won't know everything about Chris. Chris could have been really struggling. But I do think the situations regarding his death is very, very odd. Like, had he been assaulted, bruising and screams, you know, you'd expect both of those. And he was said to be mentally sound, but again, you never really know what someone's going through. However, just the height of the wall as well, 40 feet, and especially if he was drunk, I just... It doesn't seem the most plausible to me. And I think I'll talk about what does a little bit later on. But first, I want to mention a case that also occurred in that year. And that is the death, heartbreakingly, on New Year's Eve of Suvik Paul. Now, Suvik attended Manchester University. So he was a local to Manchester, at least to study. So he knew the area quite well. Now, he was on a night out with his friends at the Warehouse Project nightclub, which is indeed in Trafford. I know many of you will know at least what the Warehouse Project is. Parklife kind of worked with the Warehouse Project very closely, so a lot of us know what that is. Now, again, he had taken ecstasy and alcohol, but the coroner and the police don't believe this to be the sole contributor or the reason for his death. Now, Suvik was in the queue for the warehouse project and allegedly he charged at a security staff member to try and use the toilet. Now, because of this, unfortunately, he was thrown out of the nightclub at about 10.55pm and he was last seen on CCTV at 11pm outside the building. He tried to text his friends and this is the worst part. Busy phone service is literally the worst especially in this situation due to how busy the phone lines were at the time it was new year's eve the text to his friends only went through the next day so unfortunately they didn't know suvik was outside or that he needed help now suvik was reported missing the next morning by his roommate actually And his body wasn't found until 22 days later in the Bridgewater Canal. But weirdly enough, it was found 50 feet from the nightclub. So I kind of thought, would they not have found that sooner? But obviously I'm not a coroner or a police officer. So I don't really know how long it takes or how hard it is to search a canal. But Naomi Carter, you'll kind of hear her name a lot. She's one of the main coroners in and around Greater Manchester. She concluded that his death was of drowning. Again, similar to a lot of other cases, there was no marks or physical injuries on his face. And Joanne Kersley said, although drugs and alcohol may have contributed to the death, like I said, they didn't explain it. And unfortunately, this case was yet another open verdict, which must be the most frustrating thing because it doesn't even give families any sort of closure. I mean, yes, they know he drowned, but they don't know how he drowned, which must just be a nightmare. Now, Suvik's father and family, I was going to say family, but I'm sure his entire family, believes a third party may be involved. And this is largely because of the CCTV footage we do have of Suvik. So, he tried to climb a six-foot fence, first of all, which it's believed that he was trying to return to the nightclub, so I'm assuming he got thrown out and walked somewhere else. It's not completely clear, unfortunately, but it is said that he was trying to get in to the nightclub again. Now, Detective Tony Blockley, who investigates a lot of these cases, he sort of concluded that the fence that Suvik climbed, like where he ended up to climb this fence, 
It meant he'd have had to cross a bridge over a canal, travelled down the far side to climb the fence, which was still on the opposite side of the nightclub. So this is where he and a lot of people sort of thought, was someone chasing him? Did Was he scared of someone? D did he have an episode of paranoia that he felt he needed to run away from? Same with David Plunkett, who screamed out of nowhere. How are so many of these men, like Nathan, sprinting across Manchester and Salford? Why are so many of these men making such odd and erratic behaviour just before their death? Now, Suvik was seen with a mystery man right before his death on, CB on CCTV. However, this man was not said to have any connection with Suvik's death and was in fact just someone he was speaking to. But that has not gone anywhere, that lead with the unidentified male. And currently, and heartbreakingly, Suvik's case and what happened truly to Suvik is still very much unsolved. Before we sort of get into theories for these occurrences, why there are so many grey areas in the case, why they all have connections, I'm going to introduce you to the fifth and final male in this list, and his name is Charlie Pope. And this one stuck with me especially because Charlie was in his first year at university. He was studying economics and philosophy. It doesn't specify which uni, but he it is said that he knew the Manchester area incredibly well. So I would assume it's University of Manchester or Manchester Met. And on February 28th, 2018, he disappeared on a night out during, I don't know if any of you remember, the Beast from the East storm. So that was kind of like the storm we're having now, although it's argued that Storm Eunice is worse. I'm not too sure, but at the time, Beast from the East, the rain, wind, etc. was absolutely ridiculous. So it was already a rough night weather-wise. Now, Charlie and his flatmate, Lewis, they had been drinking rum together, you know. Again, I'm sure a lot of us have been there. Pre and before we go out, that's exactly what they were doing in the Oak House accommodation in Fallowfield. Now, shortly after this, they made their way to the zombie shack and they were just drinking cocktails, you know, having a good time, as lads do on a night out. Unfortunately, after a couple of hours, the pair both left, trying to board a bus, presumably back to their accommodation, but... Charlie was kicked off this bus as the bus driver said he was too drunk to ride on his bus. Now, obviously it's not the bus driver's fault, but it's heartbreaking knowing that had Charlie boarded that bus, he might not have, well, he almost certainly wouldn't have met the same fate that he unfortunately did. So, they did return to the zombie shack, it is unclear how long for, but at around 2am, the two of them had been separated for quite a while, but Lewis kind of assumed, you know, he's with some flatmates, or he's returned home, and Lewis sort of discovered missed Facebook calls from Charlie at 6am, which was really concerning to him, because he was like, why are you still out at 6am? Obviously that's not unheard of for some people. But he hadn't seen him at all or contacted him until 6am. So he was then reported missing, obviously. And his body was found by the Northwest Underwater Search and Marine Offices near Rainbar on Great Bridgewater Street. Now, again, Charlie was displaying what could be described as erratic behaviour before his death. 
because Detective Inspector Gareth Davies actually stated that the CCTV showed Charlie leaving the bar, walking down Oxford Road in the direction of his accommodation, which makes sense, he was trying to walk home. But the weirdest thing about this, it picked him up again at 4.40am, sort of heading down Oxford Road in the direction of the city centre. Now, the reason this is especially jarring is because that's the complete opposite direction from his accommodation. Now, someone or several people have kind of said, oh, maybe he was lost. But he had definitely, even if he'd have started like mid-September, October, he'd been in the area for a good few months and he was at uni there, so he'd at least know where his accommodation is. So I just, again, I don't think the fact of him being lost really holds up. And according to chroniclelive.co.uk, he was then seen walking unsteadily down Whitworth Street and past the lock building in the snow, along a toothpath, and towards a locked gate. Now, first of all, it's unusual that he's walking towards a locked gate, but it's frustrating that we don't know any more than that, because after that he moved completely out of sight of CCTV. The only other thing that we know is that he was alive at 6am, as Snapchat phone records kind of demonstrate and Coroner Nigel Meadow commented kind of backing up exactly what I said before despite being one of the most CCTV heavy nations in the world once again we have another canal death where authorities have no idea as to where, when or how Charlie managed to get into the water now pathologists such as Dr Al Habar said Charlie had died by drowning, exacerbated by the cold shock and hypothermia and alcohol intoxication. So Nigel Meadow did back this up, saying, oh, he was very, very drunk, so that's probably why he drowned. But again, I don't know. Obviously, he could have been absolutely drunk off his mind, But CCTV showed him walking to his accommodation and then three hours later walking the opposite direction. So it's sort of like, well, one, what happened in the three-hour gap between the two? And second of all, why on earth was he walking into the city centre further away from, you know, his bed or his friends back home? So again, this begs the question, was he running away from something? Did he get spooked by something? Was he drugged? And that's where we're going to get into the theories. Okay, so the first, and probably the most prolific, I'd argue, of our theories, conspiracy theories, whatever you want to call them, is that a serial killer may be making the rounds around Manchester. So this was started in 2015 by Professor Craig Jackson, head of psychology at Birmingham Uni. He kind of brought forward that a lot of the attacks occur in the city centre and not sort of in the general county in the boroughs of Greater Manchester, suggesting, I suppose, that a serial killer, obviously, a lot of the time, they target specific areas and they have a specific agenda and these were all young men a lot of them in university. He was quoted as saying, the death all had the hallmarks of foul play. The deaths all had the hallmarks of foul play. It's unlikely that such a high number of cases are just the result of accidents or suicides, as canals aren't popular suicide spots, especially for men. Now, this was refuted by Detective Superintendent Peter Marsh. He said there was a lack of evidence, which there is, but I don't think that can be dismissed at all. I I do think it is highly plausible. Now, this serial killer was given the nickname The Pusher, suggesting he might push people into these canals. Now, as I said before, according to documentation, almost 90 people have been recovered 
from Manchester's Canal since 2004. All of them are young men. And of those, only 12 of them have been identified as having occurred under mysterious circumstances. Yet, almost 30 of them have been open verdict. Now, as said before, open verdict is where the coroner just can't conclude what happened. They have as much evidence as they can get and they still just can't come to a conclusion. And the case is left at that. So, many of the men have been seen on CCTV in the early hours of the morning, is my first point. My second point is there's always been a huge time gap, like in the case of Charlie, or in the case of Dave, where they did keep in contact, but then his location was ambiguous and it went ambiguous into the early hours of the morning or Nathan who sprinted across Manchester somehow without being seen by a single camera. My third point, they're often either seen or heard acting very erratically and unconventional. Now for a lot of these men the behaviour is completely out of character as said with David he never swore at his parents he never screamed like that before. The parents had never, ever even heard him yell before. So all of this behaviour is so out of character for these men. So it just begs the question, is something bigger happening here? You know, is there a serial killer in Manchester targeting young, vulnerable men who might be drunk on their own with no one to immediately save them? And I really do think there's something bigger sort of going on here. Now, something I thought was very interesting, actually. I'd just like to pull your attention to a comment I saw on Top Mysteries video. This is by a commenter named Alpha Wolf. So, huge shout out to you. And they said... The first case, so the case of David Plunkett, puts me in mind of the Henry McCabe case from the States. There are some eerie similarities. He was also found in a body of water with no marks on him. Interestingly enough, it's thought that McCabe said, I've been shot when the phone call came in, and yet they found no marks on him at all. There was some type of growling that raised all of the hairs on my body on the released portion of the recording as it doesn't sound like something that I've ever heard before strange that there are so many com commonalities between that case and the first one that was covered on this video now I had heard of the Henry McCabe case before actually but I never realised all the similarities between his and David Plunkett's case so was there a serial killer in the US? Is there a serial killer in the UK? I think it's... I genuinely do think it's highly, highly likely. Now, there are some people sort of suggesting it might be paranormal. You know, dozens and dozens of men going missing, found weeks later floating in a body of water. It could definitely be a paranormal thing. Now, do I believe the paranormal ghost spirit theory as much as I believe in the theory of a killer or several serial killers? Because a lot of the time you do get copycat killers. No. Could it be a plausible theory because we just don't know what's happening to these men? Definitely. Now, I want to be quite sensitive when I talk about this because there have been quite a few cases of men being found in the canals near Princess Street, near the gay village. So it was kind of spread, maybe this killer is targeting young gay men or closeted gay men. Now, disclaimer, none of the men that I've talked about could I find anything about explicitly about them being gay or closeted or anything like that. So this is not referring to any of the people I've talked about. And I don't know if I believe the theory completely myself because it's also happening in a lot of Manchester canals and not just the Gay Village Canal. Um, 
if it is happening and there's someone preying on young gay men that is horrific but i don't think if there is a serial killer or if these deaths are all connecting in some way that they are specifically targeting gay men if that makes sense unfortunately that is all the information we have on those cases and that's all we're really able to go off and until there is concrete evidence of some sort of serial killer or until the council decides to put up more CCTV so we can better operate and better look at these people and not have hours and hours of unaccounted for footage. These cases and the true meaning behind a lot of them will unfortunately remain unsolved. We are now reaching the segment of this podcast that largely inspired me to create this podcast in the first place, actually, and that's our Actively Missing People segment. Now, I just think it's really important, first and foremost, for local people who might not get as much coverage from the news to get coverage in any way that they can. They deserve to be sent home to their friends and families safe and in good health just as much as the more prolific cases do and I thought I'd try my best to do local cases so these two cases are the closest to Salford that I could find that are recent so I hope that this does help or ring anyone's bells in some way. The first of the missing people is Stephen Durand and he was last seen on the 20th of October 2018 in Swinton. He was aged 31 at the time, he'll be 34 now. Now, it's believed that he travelled from Chorley to Manchester the day before this, so the 19th, by train, and is described as mixed race, around 5 foot 10, of a stocky beard with cropped dark hair and short dark facial hair, his last known movements were at 2 o'clock on the 19th of October. His card was used at a cash machine in Charlie Town Centre. That's 2pm by the way, not 2am. Believed to have travelled from Charlie to Manchester that afternoon. And at about 7pm on the 20th of October, he was seen on CCTV at a bargain booze on Bolton Road in Salford. He then visited the Premier Store on Agecroft Road in Swinton at about 11, 11 p.m. Anyone who has seen Stephen since then or remembers seeing a man around any of those locations at the time, so you've got, let's have a look, you've got Charlie Town Centre, you've got um, Bargain Booze on Bolton Road, You've got the Premier Store on Agecroft Road. If any of you saw him at the time, October 2018, it is a while ago, but it's better to ask than to not. Or if you've seen him since then, you are urged to contact missing people on 116000. You can email 116000 at missingpeople.org.uk. You can complete the Missing People's online form or, outside of Missing People, you can call Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111 or just call 111. Side note, Missing People is an incredible charity and they do a lot of work to help support the missing and they're constantly putting on their website people who go missing near enough every day. So be sure to have a look on there and especially on your local area just to see if there's anyone you've seen or you recognise or you can help them return home. Now, my second person went missing quite recently. He is called Stefan Cattigera. I might have mispronounced that. I am very sorry. He was last seen on the 27th of January 2022 in the Salford area and he was aged 36 at the time. He was last seen wearing black jeans, a black jacket, a three-quarter length jacket with a hood a, and black trainers. Now he answers to the name Christian and he is a white southeastern European male around six foot one 
of medium build with short black hair and short black facial hair. So the police specifically for this case asked anyone with any information to contact the police on 0161 856 5056. However, you can do any of the other methods I mentioned above. Missing people is always great, 111. Crime stoppers on 0800 555 111. Anything necessary to get these people home. And if you ever see a missing person, be sure, even if the sighting or if you remember seeing them, even if it seems minuscule to you, it could be the key to solving a case. So I always urge you to contact whoever you can if you do ever see any of these people. Alright guys, well we have reached the end of our first episode. I will always take requests for unsolved mysteries, solved mysteries, conspiracy theories, particularly missing people because a lot of missing people from Salford and Greater Manchester don't get a lot of media coverage. So should you guys have any requests or anyone you think I need to talk about, do not hesitate to let me know. But until then, stay safe, stay well, and always contact people. Even if you want to go away for a while, contact someone you trust. You don't want to be someone that we're trying to uncover the truth within the mystery of. Thank you. And I'll see you next time on The Scarlet Letter.